Welcome to the Launch University Podcast, turning good intentions into reality in your career, business, and life. Here's your host, Jeff Henderson. Hey, everybody. Today's podcast was originally recorded in front of a live audience at the Gwinnett Church staff meeting, and it features Sid and Ann Mashburn. Sid and Ann are phenomenal launchers, phenomenal leaders, and phenomenal people. Enjoy. Now, Ann, let, let, me, let me introduce you a little bit. How many of you have ever watched the movie Devil Wears Prada? You ever seen that movie? All right. This is Ann Hathaway, okay? <laughs> So actually tell us a little bit about who you worked for and that story so they get a little bit of of your background. Yeah, okay, so I um, worked in fashion in the 80s and I worked for Vogue magazine. I got a job completely, just fell from the sky kind of. I I had um, studied English and business at University of Colorado, but I knew I wanted to be and go work in fashion or advertising. So I moved to New York you know, no internet, you go drop off your resume at all the places. But I got called a couple times to some editors at Condé Nast, which is the big um, publishing company, but I ended up in the office of the fashion editor, okay? So you all know probably, if you saw that movie, that it's about Anna Wintour, who is the um, editor-in-chief of Vogue now, but she was actually in the office next to me. So I worked for this other very dramatic woman named Polly Mellon, who really, if you watch the movie, she reminds... Um, um, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep, thanks. Reminds me more of her. But anyway, I got this job, and it was, you know, just like that. I mean, you were basically a slave to at the whims of a very dynamic, emotional, bossy, crazy. crazy, creative woman, and you just had to figure it out on the fly. So it was a great experience for doing, you know, figuring anything out on your own in, the, again, the age of no internet. But I learned, I mean, it was a year and a half, but it was, you know, 10 years of, of life experience you know, learned a lot. So what were, what were some lessons that you learned from there that you apply to your business today? Um, and some of it may be not what, yeah. what not to do, right? Yeah, what not to do, actually. I mean, I think, it, I think the world has changed with women and leadership in a lot of ways. Um, so certainly I don't lead by screaming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm a mother of five girls and believe me, I scream a lot. <laughs> um, so, well, the thing that I, I talk about a lot, so I hope if you've heard me before, I don't repeat myself too much, but the one thing that I really learned, well, first of all, I learned how to dress. And Sid and I are in a business where we're, we're basically, we're, we're doing a lot of things, but the real impetus is that we love clothes and we love, we've always been interested in design of all sorts, but our particular thing is that we sell clothes and make clothes. So I really learned how to dress and how to present myself um, in a very efficient way, okay? So all these women love fashion, but they were actually really efficient. I don't, I'm really a 80-20 person. I don't like to spend a lot of time on anything. And I learned how to um, put myself together so that I really had confidence. I just know how to dress, and I always feel pretty great, or mostly I do. And to me, that was a huge thing to check off because I hate having mind space that, you know, I worry about that or, you know, clothes are really important because it's how you feel about yourself. But the other thing I really learned as a woman was that I, and I hope I'm not taking too long, sorry. You're great. But um, the, um, I worked with mostly older editors. The woman who I worked for was 62 at the time, and she seemed really old to me then. But, um, you know, most of them, when they were very accomplished, 40, 50, 60-year-old women, a lot of them were not as naturally beautiful as the, as the models that they were photographing all the time, okay? They were handsome women, super chic, because they knew how to dress well, but they weren't necessarily, you know, drop-dead beautiful, which these models are just unbelievable. I mean, you like can't... Who? Yeah, like... Uh, just all of them, Cindy Crawford, Elle McPherson, I mean, 
um, Brooke Shields, Isabella Rossellini, all these actresses I worked with, and they really are astoundingly pretty. But what I, what I really learned was that a lot of those women were super insecure. And they, you know, especially the younger models, they didn't, they, and even, even some older models who had had full careers as models, you know, they were vulnerable on the set. Getting your picture taken today is not like it was then. Everybody, there's, that's changed. They were very insecure. And I thought, you know, I would rather look like these older women who were older and wrinkled and gray and cool than, you know, if, if God could give me the gift of choice, I, I, I hope I grow into those women. I'm not really jealous of these young, beautiful girls because I'd rather be like these women. And I really think that as a woman, especially when you're young, like I was at 23, that's a, that's a really cool lesson to learn because it just changes the way, I mean, we're in a world of comparison. I mean, comparison is the thief of joy. But that really was, I tried to go back and remember that. I don't always remember That's it. That's so good. That's yeah. so good. And so tell me how you, you two met. So you're a Mississippi that. boy. Yeah. And so you're yeah. in New York now, right? Yeah, so we're both exactly. in New York at the exactly. time that we met. So I, I, I'm, I'm from Mississippi, which I, as, I don't even have to say. It's really, as you know, the locus of fashion. <laughs> uh, and so... Um, Sorry, Bryce. I, I, Sorry about that. Bryce, you can tell. Bryce, I hope you're holding up there. Um, but um, so I, I fled from Ole Miss in 83 to New York, and, and um, they were pulling straw out of my hair for years. Uh, I was super country, but was, went to New York. I didn't, I didn't have a job. I didn't have anything. And so, so you just said, hey, I'm just going to move to New York. Uh, actually, I wanted to go. It's funny because I grew up, um, my, my grandparents were in the retail business. They had a, a, a number of stores, different types of stores in a small ag- agricultural community in, uh, outside of uh, Jackson. It's not on the map. But basically, it was taking care of community. And that's, that's probably one of the things that I've learned over the years is, is you don't realize how much DNA of your family, whether it's family business or your behavior or whatever it is, is really in you. Uh, along the way, uh, but I, uh, I got a job in high school. As soon as I get, the day I got my driver's license, I drove straight to this men's store to get a job because I loved clothes and loved people. So uh, my my siblings were super clothes people, and so even in high school, I was like, I, I, I can be a designer. I can do what those guys in GQ do. And you know, when you're in the ninth grade and you got a subscription to GQ in Brandon, Mississippi, it's like, <laughs> who are you and what is that? Uh, and it's just, it's, that's where I found my identity. That, and, and as Bryce and I were talking about, was sort of football and, and fashion is where music. I, and music, yeah. And so, um, anyway, I uh, told my dad midway through college, because I was at Ole Miss, just kind of, you know, not doing anything except for in some classes that I liked. I said, hey, I want to go to fashion school in New York. And he looked at me like, fashion school? What, what is that about? And I, you know, told him, and he said, you know what, I'll help you finish regular school, which was Ole Miss. <laughs> And then you can do whatever you want to do. So as soon as I graduated, he said, take the car, sell it, go to New York, see if you can figure it out. And so he gave me the, uh, the stamp of approval, and I went up there, no job, a couple of friends, and um, started grinding it out. Tried to get in fashion school there, couldn't. And was working at a company called um, British Khaki, and the guy hired me to do sales, but he told me he'd teach me how to design. And um, so that's analyze fabrics, do silhouettes, pitch colors, you know, all the kind of building blocks of what is good design. And I trusted him because I lo- loved the clothes that I was selling for him. And so I went to the beach one Sunday and met Ann on the beach. She kind of walked up to me and asked some, you know, 
I asked him if he knew when the trains went back to New York. It was a great question. It was a leading question. <laughs> um, and so then I went back and asked her some stupid question later on. And we got up to leave and she followed me and then we stopped to take a picture and then I swung around to follow her back to the train and got on the train and... It's a very... Um, it, it, is a lot, it says a lot about a relationship. I'm a very fast decision maker. So <laughs> I, um, I saw him and I said, I'm going to meet him. And then I followed him. And then it took him a little while to call me back because he knew where I worked, but he didn't, we didn't, you know, at that time you wouldn't give somebody your phone number. So I kept waiting for him to call. And I was out of the office doing a fashion shoot all week. And I told the receptionist at Vogue to make sure she answered my phone because I said, the man I'm going to marry is going to call me this week. But wow. then he didn't call. <laughs> so I had to... I did call, call that week. I just called yeah. after you called. Anyway, so. I, I had to call. I had called when I knew he wouldn't be there and left a message, and that's what he needed. So. Now, when did y'all make the connection about fashion? Was that just... We were both just happened to be working in it. I mean, I was working at Vogue, and he was doing that. And I, you know, we, so we kind of... And we were really young. We were not just short of our 24th birthday. So we kind of grew up together in fashion so we really did have this bond but we you know obviously never worked together until we opened this business mm-hmm. and so Sid if I understand so you guys have heard of J. Crew, right so you were the first designer for J. Crew, and I got the job actually through Ann a yeah. friend of there hers uh, a sort of swanky Upper East Side girl who worked at Vogue mm-hmm. left Vogue which is you know pretty prime job for you know a young girl and was going to a nameless startup catalog company in New Jersey, which is about four elements of horribleness. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and then the, the idea that you would have to reverse commute from Manhattan over to yeah, New Jersey. Yeah. And um, I saw it as an opportunity. I was like, oh, they're, they're, you, you got design jobs there? And I, again, I, I had not been technically trained, so I was, you yeah. know, but I knew a lot because I'd grown up working in retail. And um, so anyway, I, I mean, w- you talk about wow and how. I mean, they were basically hiring a lot of wow people and then supporting with them some how people. I love that. I'd never heard that before. And Sid was a, a wow and a, and a decent how, but big wow. <laughs> so uh, I went out. I went out there. I was a day early for the interview. Uh, I went to the to the desk and said, "Hey, I'm here to see Emily Senator." They're like. And who are you? I said, I'm Sid Mashburn. They said, oh, yeah, yeah tomorrow she'll, is your interview. I said, oh. So I kind of tried to sneak out of the, of the place in Garfield, New Jersey, back to the bus to take me to Port Authority. And this guy comes running across the parking lot. And I'm, he's going, Sydney, Sydney, Sydney. I'm like, who is that? He's like this old guy, madras jacket, green pants, white shoes. I'm like, this is super strange. And he goes, he says, Arthur Senator, he's the founder of J. Crew, and never gets quite the credit for what J. Crew was. And his daughter was the CEO and really the creative head. And I, we talked for about two hours, and he basically uh, sent me back to New York. And his daughter calls me up and says, Bummer, but I don't really have to interview you because my dad said I got to hire you. So uh, <laughs> just figure out where you want to show up. And um, so, anyway, that was the beginning. Wow. That was 1984. Five. Yeah, okay. eighty-five. Six, like so, so Anne, you've got 86. this great. Both of you guys have this great career. One of the questions that is always, you know, as you can tell, I'm the I'm the old guy here. This is all the young, <laughs> yeah. beautiful people. So, one of the questions that they have that we all have is how do how do I determine God's will for my life? You guys are in New York, things are going great, but now you fast forward, you're here in Atlanta. So, walk us through how did you make the decision 
to leave all of that, to come down to Atlanta, to start your store and where you are now? What, what was the decision-making process like? I'll open it up by saying getting fired makes decision-making much easier. <laughs> I hear God very clearly through closed doors. <laughs> it's good. If I ever write a book, it would be called Closed Doors. So, <laughs> Well, that's good, though. I mean, sometimes yeah. the, the, those closed doors in life actually are the ones that lead to the open doors. Yeah. I mean, so we're, I mean, I look back and kind of like the story you were just sharing with me, in your own life, you can see little bits that, you know, have helped you to get to where you are right now. I mean, since I met Sid, he's always wanted to do what he is doing now. He always wanted to design his own clothing, but he loved retail. So he always wanted to combine the two. And in fact, he kind of tried to at different points in our life, but it didn't, it, you know, something always, another closed door got in the way. But at that point, we were 45, and he'd been fired. And so the choice was either go back to New York and work in design again, or to take this, you know, as 45, you have a little bit of a, we had some savings, and we just made the decision, as an entrepreneur, you have to say, can I lose all this? Because that's the risk you take. So we, um, I just said, let's try it. I mean, he said, let's move to a place, and we're going to start this business. And so we started it together in, in uh, 2007. But again, it was a choice. And, and I didn't want to. I'm not an entrepreneur. I was like, let's go get a job. But I just, you know, I said, well, I can, I can lose this. And then you can, al- you can always get a job. I thought you're pretty employable, so it's okay. And um, pretty pretty risk averse. Yeah. And, and I am not, uh, you know, I'm not a better. Unless I'm the one I've, that went to business school. So yeah. <laughs> uh, but I, I didn't see it as a risk. Mm-hmm. I saw it as an opportunity. And mm-hmm. so... Um, also, I'm, I'm a, uh, even though I, I became a uh, Christian at a pretty young age, I quickly ran for every, you know, shady, you know, corner and dark cloud to kind of hide from God uh, for the next probably, you know, 13, 14 years. But he always had, um, the seal was on. So um, a lot of, deci- I mean, even though I was running, I still left a lot of decision making in his hands. And there's a couple of things, a few things I stepped out on that I shouldn't have, but he also can redeem anything. So bad decision making was, was basically made much easier through the, the guidance. And he didn't speak to me through the shaving mirror, through the radio, but there, there are signs along the way. So, Well, I love, the, I love your location, but the thing about your location is y'all are really kind of it's not what it was uh, when you're so yeah. what what gave you the vision to go that's that's where we should go because you know visionary leaders see things that other people can't and they see things before other people do so how, how did what what gave because right now if you were to drive down there you're like oh this makes perfect sense mm-hmm. it didn't necessarily make perfect sense when you opened in 2007 not only because of the location but because of the economy well let me let me say this um ann and i had a a pretty good conversation on the way up here about strengths and weaknesses and how I was trying to explain, I, I love any sports analogy I'm good with. And I was trying to yeah, tell her how had him at hello. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, helmet stickers. I'm all about the helmet stickers. So anyway, I said, you know what, think about in basketball, if I can go to the right and I'm strong there and can't go to the left, that's not a strength anymore because my strength will be played out by about the fourth time down the floor. Okay, because the guy will say, I don't have to worry about him going to the left. And so I'm a little bit like Joshua. I'm like, let's go. And Ann's like, go where? Where are you? You know, and so I'm not so great at always communicating to her what, where it is we're going. And so 
Well, going through that is, is a, a friend of mine from Atlanta who I went to college with in Mississippi showed, us, showed me that place while I was down here scouting. We had nine cities and I uh, got it down to New York and Chicago. And then Ann's the one who said, how about Atlanta? I said, how about, praise God, let's go. I went down, came down in January of, of um, 2007 and um, went to this, you know, drove, actually I started at the underground Atlanta and drove to Lenox, the whole city, up and up and up and down, up and down, back and forth. And the first night there, my friend took me to Taqueria del Sol. And I was like, why are we going to a taco place in Atlanta on a, you know, cold wintry night when you had to stand outside and wait? And after I ate, I was like, this is pretty good. And so by about Friday, I was like, bummer. I don't, there's no place that's, that's acting like the, the, you know, the real epicenter of where we should be. Because I, I, and fortunately with all the jobs I had with J. Crew or Polo or whomever, I got a chance to travel the world and kind of see, you know, what, what, what had the sizzle to it. And so I said, I'm going back to Taqueria on the way to the airport to eat. And I got grabbed a taco and the parking lot was teeming with people. I'm like, this is cool. I came back home, told Ann. She quickly got on a plane and came down. Yeah, and it was, it was, it was February and there were daffodils out. And I just was- We were know, in Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. Snow was up to here. <laughs> So we liked it, but I would say that Sid has a great, I mean, he's, we're, we're both in design. You can't be a designer without picking up on things and noticing things. And in particular, Sid is somebody who, who always takes the back roads. He doesn't like to go down the main road. He really um, is, is, you know, I've learned to trust his, his vision a little more than I used to because I'm more skeptical and I like to go down the main road. Um, um, but he's really, and, and I also think as a designer, you know, you just notice things. It felt really cool. We both just, and we were really naive, honestly. We, we it was, you know, God's good um, grace that, that it's become as cool as it is over there. But we, we just weren't afraid to try. And it, again, it, it, you know, we've made mistakes before and definitely it could have been a wrong decision. We have lots of locations and some of them are better than others. So it's, you know, you just, you just take a chance and, it, and it's turned out really well. And, and I think we've actually kind of built it to be a cool place, to be honest, because we, we brought a lot to the area and other people have come um, based on what we've built. So I, you know. I want to talk a little bit about design in just a second, but so that everyone knows, walk us through the timeline of opening up the first store, your store, and online, and your other five locations. Um, Okay, so 2007, we opened Sid Mashburn. Then, you know, I'm in the background. October, October October 15th. I've got uh, five kids at home, ages at the time, 18 down to six, I think. So I'm really behind the business, but I'm not, you know, selling clothes on the floor, and that was never the plan. But um, three years into it, in 2010, where if you've been over there, Jenny's ice cream is, is amazing, but that little shop there became available. And our landlord, who is also a true visionary, great creative guy, said, you're going to go in there. You've got to open a women's store. And I said, I have no interest in doing that. I do not like to sell clothes. I like to make them or be, I was a fashion editor, I, you know, and the things I liked were not a business, a lot of them. I thought I didn't have a lot of confidence in doing that, but he kept saying, no, you're going to do it. So we have five daughters. I thought, you know what? I'm just, they're probably, if I didn't want this family business ever, but now that I have it, they probably might want to work in, in and you were, women's clothes. And you were liking it at this point also. Yeah, I mean, yes. I mean, it was... Actually, that's a great point. When we finally built this store that I was very skeptical about, I just thought, okay, this is better than it was in my head. This is really cool. I mean, 
I mean, you've done it here. Making something out of nothing, nothing is intoxicating. You know, it's really great. It, it's, it's hugely scary, but once you're in and once you've accepted the risk, you have nothing to do but go forward and don't think about it. So anyway, so I said, okay, I'll sign a year lease, but if I don't like it, I'm getting out. I, I cannot do this. And I didn't want to mess up the business that was actually starting to go well. My business went really well in 2010. We started internet in 2011. So we were online then. Site crashed the first day. Yeah, Good sign. Really well. That means people want to come see you. So. And most of the pictures you're seeing are in, well, that's in Dallas. But in 2012, we combined my store with SIDS because a bigger space became available. So then it really is now a place where you can shop both places. 2013, we opened Houston. First off-site location. 2015, we opened very quickly Washington, D.C., and then a month after that, Dallas. It wasn't supposed to be that way, but that's how it turned out. And then in 2016, we opened Los Angeles. Right, men's store only. Men's store. Along the way, also, our offices have grown. Okay, so it started with the, the company started with three people. Now we have about 150. We have a headquarters that's very close. It's across the bridge. It's under where... Uh, crate, is Crate Merrill? I don't think so. <laughs> remember board. Now you remember board. From Minnesota. Yeah. Um, so anyway, and, you know, we've added designers and, and then, you know, technical people and sourcing and, you know, really growing the company. But that's pretty much the timeline. Yeah. And you've added a coffee shop. Oh, yeah. And then, then last year, we, we took the space that was a women's store that went out of business or she left, um, we opened up a little coffee shop lifestyle. It's, it's, we're still tweaking it. It's actually a really beautiful space, but we don't drive too much commerce in there you know, right now because we're still figuring it out. Yeah. It's great. We love it. And yeah. Kid Mashburn. And Kid Mashburn, which is really fun. <laughs> Sid, Sid is skeptical about it. <laughs> we have, we've had kids. No. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's very creative and really great. I mean, actually, we, we do a little bit of business. Yeah. Well, and also, yeah. I, yeah. so Sid and I had coffee a few weeks ago in Brooklyn. Have you been to their coffee shop yet? It's, it's really amazing. She's it's our really she's our coffee yeah. expert. Yeah, like yeah, we have three three brands. We have uh, King State from uh, Tampa. We have uh, Methodical from Greenville, South Carolina, and then we always have a secret stash of um, Italian coffee from Naples, Italy. You have to ask for that. It's very old and sludgy and delicious. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but if you as you hear their timeline of what what they're launching, a uh, couple things kind of reminds me of Gwinnett Church a little bit. And then I, we have this. Uh, Andy talks about this momentum that new, newer, and improving keeps. You have to sustain this, but if you go a length of time without launching anything, things can get really stale and old really fast. So this, I've, I feel like, has helped keep y'all on your toes in terms of uh, fashion and design and all of that. That said, I, you're looking at a bunch of designers. They may not see themselves this way, but that's what they are and many other wonderful things. We design environments. We design curriculum. We design guest services. We design services. We design experiences. So I would love for you to walk us through a couple of things. First of all, how you design your guest services experience. Because as I go into your stores, uh, your people, by the way, and how you design your hiring, I love your team. They're absolutely phenomenal. And every time I ask, I'm down there, I'm like, I get, y'all get the same question I get. Where do you find all these wonderful people? Yeah. So I'd love for you to talk about designing your hiring or uh, uh, in your culture, designing your guest services experience, because that's one of the many things that you're known for. But before you go there, I would love for you to just talk to us about design. Because design to me, it seems like this fuzzy, 
mysterious thing, but one of the things I've learned from y'all is really great designers are great noticers. You, mm-hmm. you, you both are really great, but, and you, have, you just notice things quickly. It, obviously, some of that's a gift, but for those of us that may not have the gift of noticing things, uh, how have you used that to design your stores, your online space, all of that? Yeah, yeah, I will say this. There, there is. I mean, as everybody grows up, you you, you have a proclivity towards something, you know. And just thank God, uh, you know, He allowed me to have something where the vocation and avocation could converge. And the same thing for Ann. I mean, she is definitely the best salesman in the whole company, not because she's selling, but because she knows how to put things together and share them in a way that gives you confidence. Because in the end, really what we're selling or trafficking in or the, you know, the currency we're offering is confidence. And so if you love people and you love connecting and you love sharing, you're not selling anymore. Okay, can, I, can I stop there? That's yeah. a great point. They're, they're not selling clothes, they're selling confidence. It's, it's much like Frank Blake at Home Depot says, we're not selling drill bits. What we're selling is the emotion that when the spouse comes around the corner and sees the new part of the house and he or she says, that's awesome. And that feeling of confidence and affirmation, that's what Home Depot is selling. So we're not necessarily selling rooms and chairs. We're obviously you know, leading people to Jesus, but there is an emotion that we're leading them to. And understanding that is really important. So that fact that y'all are... What we're doing is trying to instill confidence in people, and a jacket can do that. That that's awesome. So sorry to interrupt, but that no, was no, 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 because it's yeah. exactly where I was going. Because the the thing is, is is if if any anybody in here read Outliers, okay, well, Outliers, you know, I've been doing literally dressing myself since I'm eight, nine years old. Like I was in the clothes at that age. So the 10,000 times I had done it by the time I was, you know, by the time I got to New York. And so, um, and Anne the same way, she grew up in a, in a household where a mother encouraged her and her and her brother, you know, to design their own rooms. And so we kind of grew up in households. And my parents were not cre- necessarily creative mm-hmm. people per se, mm-hmm. nor were yours per se. Mm-hmm. But my you're not. Sure yeah, she's a great painter actually. So, but um, anyway, you 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 take what you like and have learned and kind of pull it together because the other thing that people don't realize even about J. Crew in the early days is 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 that. Um, you know, and coined the phrase, and it's so good. It's like the, the line was preppy hippie, okay? So it was not quite Nirvana, but it was more Grateful Dead, okay? It was a little, you know, preppy, but also not too preppy. It was not too precise or put together. It had a little bit of mystery on either side. And so J. Crew's appeal was from the Hudson River to East L.A. and everything in between. Most fashion people want to go on the margin, we're not, we don't want to be on the margin because we want to meet everybody. So when we wrote the business plan, there, we said no demographic. And so Ann's ability to dress, you know, a six to 18 year old, you know, five of them in clothes that were well-priced, great quality, great style, great value, uh, and great pass along, but also dress her mom and my mom at the same time who were approaching 80, is a real gift. And that's part of the design, the design of the experience, the design of the pricing, the design of the space, the design of the bags, the design of having the tailoring shop be an open-air tailor shop. And I was trying to interrupt you, but you hit it, the experience, because that's really what people are coming to. So we feel the... um, 
privilege, the opportunity, the responsibility, the onus of giving you something if you cross the threshold. So you know, t- 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 yeah. t- tell us about that. Okay, so, well, I, I want to just make a little point about design. Like, the, the thing is, is you, can, you obviously can get better at it. You know, I'm a bigger picture, see, I, I like the romance of an outfit. So I will take something and I can make almost anything look great by the way I feel in it and the idea I have in my head. But Sid is a technical designer and will come over and he will see, oh my, and my head of design will say, that, that shoulder is way off, you know. You need both. So we can design this great experience and say, oh, we want the music and we want it to be beautiful in our store, but it has to be tight. And it's so art Sid, and science. Yeah, Sid always talks about um, James Brown and he talks about him being, you, you say it, like loose and tight at the same time. Like the band has to be really tight, but it's got to feel really loose. So I think that's something we both, um, you have to teach yourself to do that. You have to say, I have to really notice because you can't just let all these people in the door and then it's like, ah, it's bedlam and then everything goes wrong. So we try really hard to be great designers of, you know, technically making clothes beautifully, but also making them, you know, because somebody can come to the shop, they might, you know, you want your people to know that they're they're uptight or they don't want a lot of help or they do need a lot of attention or whatever. So there's all these levels of noticing. I'm kind of going all over the place, but... But the feel, the feel, if I can draft off that, the feel of when you walk in needs to feel loose. Yeah, I'm welcome. You can't feel us being tight. Yeah. You got to be like, so when people come in, we don't really say, what can we help you with today? Or can we help you find something? It's more like, hey man, you want a drink? And and while I'm saying that, I'm moving, you know? I'm like, you want a drink? So he's not thinking that I'm just there going, hey man, can I help you find something? I don't know that so some of that important. was so designed. It's just kind of who we are. It's like yeah. a party. Yeah. You want it to feel like a party, but you know what? The party's tight. We got the refreshments in back. There's fresh ice. There's fresh drinks. There's fresh clothes. And we're also, you're getting new clothes every week in the store. So that refreshment of newness is ongoing. You know? Well, that, yeah. th- this row right here, our student team's going to be so impressed. I know this because the young people say they're trying hard. They're trying too hard to to impress me. So there you go. I'm, I'm hip, relevant. And so um, I think what y'all have done, and this is an important point, back in the early days of North Point in the, the 95, 96, 97, and the production is still important. So don't hear me wrong. Production is really important. But we can come off if we're not careful of trying too hard. Mm-hmm. So y'all can have a, but it's tight because it's not a sloppy business, Mm-mm. but there is a relaxed feel to it. And that's something I hear a lot about what this team has created at both locations. There's a warmth. There's a, you notice me. Mm-hmm. I don't feel lost. Smile. But man, the, the, the experience is great. Any other lessons on that? Because that's really, really important. Well, you know, this in a, in a broad sense, like in design, a lot of times, a lot of interior decorators might say, you, you know, you need one ugly piece in the room. You need something that makes it feel not perfect. Something misplaced. Yeah, yeah. Made, so. or, or, you know, you know, Sid, even though he, he, he's not perfect, his tie's always a little disheveled. You know, that's his charm in a way. So I think that it's... It, um, you don't want to look too overproduced. Like personally, I don't like that. Some people do. Um, so I'm, I'm, again, I'm very 80-20. And I think, you know, I want it to be good enough so that 
you know, it can happen, but too much can make people feel uncomfortable. And so we, I know that we think about that. It's just the way it turns out. I've heard Sid yeah. say that it takes him longer to get ready than you do. Yeah. So. No question. No question. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't take a long time, you know, to, be honest, to be fair. He's, he's pretty easy. The other, the other thing about that is, is you also have to have the EQ yeah. to be able to, to, when someone comes in the door, to kind of quickly go, this guy does not want to hear anything other than um, where the socks are or where the underwear is because they're in a hurry. So that's got to feel pretty easy. You know, you've got it in that split second, you got to go, this is not a guy that I can just say, hey, you want to drink? It's like, hey, wh- what you need today? You, you just can feel it from when they walk in the door. So that goes back to a tightness, you know, and, and kind of managing the art and science of what you're trying to do. So this crew right here is our guest services team. So that's why they're on the front row taking all these notes. <laughs> so, uh, so they've got volunteers that have to have that EQ. So we have hundreds of guest services volunteers. So what, uh, and all, all of our environments have guest services volunteers. So what have you, what have you done? Let, let's talk about what you want to be known for in terms of your culture and how you design. So right now, you won't be at the store when it opens up. you got in a great team, but none of the, the, the culture has suffered at all because it's, it's going. What, how have you instilled, tell us what you want to instill in your culture, what do you want to be known for, and then how you instill that design into your, to your team from, from a guest services standpoint. Well, I mean, most people who want to work in a shop like people and they like clothes. And so I think we, we just, you know, like you, you just hire people and you take a risk whether they're going to um, you know, represent you as well as you want them to. I mean, you can't grow without giving away control and freedom and all that stuff. Some delegation. Yeah. But then, you know, when you build people up and they do it, it's, it's so satisfying to, to lead people and see them flourish and see them succeed. But I think that, you know, you have to have that desire. I mean, there's introverts, there's extroverts. You know, you need to hire extroverts who like to be with people, but people... So I think, you know, you, you lead by example. and you, you know, like any like parenting, whatever, you reward when something's great and you give feedback when it's not. Um, but, you know, I and, think... And early on, we did a lot of testing and we've kind of backed off of that a little yeah. bit. And I think we feel like we're at a place now that we can kind of get a pretty good gauge by our interview process and by word of mouth and by referencing that we, mm-hmm. you know, feel good enough. And also, the, this is very interesting, the company's big enough to where one person's not going to really make or break, make or break yeah, us. Yeah. In the old days when it was four or five of us on the floor and it was in Atlanta and you hired one person, if they were too strong or too weak, you were like, eh, this, they're not right for right now. So, and, it, and, you know, culture, I'm sure you've read this too, that, you know, if you, if you start with the culture, people either lift up to it or they, they weed their way out. Like they're, they're not, they're either like how we're doing things or this isn't the right retail environment for them. And, you know, uh, you know, the majority of the people who work for us now do not work on the floor of the of right. retail environment. They're also, you know, working side by side. And I do think we've got a pretty, you know, the same culture where we just want to be, we are really, we're New Yorkers, Sid and I, you know, he might be from Mississippi and I might be from the Midwest, but we really, our professional careers were built in New York. And so we are a, you know, we like to work, <laughs> but... And we like to win. Yeah, I mean, we're yeah. very, very competitive people and the people, you know, that work on the floor, they have their own inner scoreboard. And we, we have a scoreboard. We, we, we run it every day. So your KPIs and your measurements are, mm-hmm. are an important piece. That's not the driver, though. Right. Well, to keep it us in business. Well, <laughs> well the, it, it, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I, should, I, I didn't finish that. You're right, because 
while our store can appear to be and sometimes is a front for ministry, ministry can't go on if it doesn't have the resources. Right. And the resources for us are selling the clothes right. and making the business work. Mm-hmm. So we have to be super successful at running that too. Two words I've really loved uh, receiving from y'all as a customer is hopefulness and helpfulness. So t- tell us why those, you don't really hear that word in your industry a lot. So tell us about that. This uh, I've shared with uh, Jeff and David Farmer is a book that, um, yeah, what's the saying is culture eats strategy for breakfast. Is that right? But anyway, about four or five years into our business, we realized that we were growing pretty well. And this was, a, you know, we started it in 2007, right when the economy was just getting ready to take off. <laughs> the wrong way. And so we, you know, we were, we were growing and we were, you know, our business was growing and we were growing with people. And so we said, you know, we've got to get the, the business is growing such, we got to get this, the oral tradition down on paper. And so we, you know, a friend of ours helped us frame it, a guy named Chris Morocco, and he just kind of moderated and really just drew out of us and made us focus on what was important. And so we came up with what are our core values. And our six core values are hopefulness, helpfulness, hard work, honesty, humility, and as you know, that leads to honor. And uh, we didn't start out with we wanted it to be alliterative or... Could you repeat those? Hopefulness, helpfulness hard work, honesty, humility, and honor. And in a weird way, those were chronological cornerstones of the business. Because when we got to Atlanta, you know, I think our kids saw this, Ann saw this, I saw this, but, you know, we came from New York, we came from Wisconsin, we'd moved around the country a little bit, but we'd never really seen kind of the level of hopefulness that Atlanta had. Mm-hmm. And then everybody was like, you know what, today's a pretty good day, I think tomorrow's going to be better. Literally, almost everybody we met was like that. Mm. And then the other thing was that people, the willingness for people to help out. So hopefulness and helpfulness, we didn't, we didn't decide that. That, that just came to our, our back door. Uh, you know, and Annie Quatrano, does anybody know Annie Quatrano in here? Two-time James Beard Award winner, chef of, and founder of Bacchanalia. Um, she is unbelievable. When she shows up at your yeah, then the business, her business at that time was probably $15, $20 million business. When she shows up at your back door, knocking on the door, I open the door, I can't even see somebody because they're carrying boxes. And I hear this voice say, I hear you need some boxes. You know, this is a woman, she's very busy, but she was a, uh, uh, the chef and restaurateur across the, the courtyard from us. She heard we needed some boxes and she came over. I was, everybody we found was like that. And then the honesty and hard work came from our um, master tailor, Dow, who, when he joined us, he was about 67 years old today. I think he's 78 years old. And uh, I said, Dow, what's the criteria you're looking for in tailors? He said, I'm looking for, and he's Laotian. He's very, very cool and and super intense. Um, He said, I'm looking for honesty and hard work. And that's it. And so uh, he's a taskmaster, but he's also, um, he's, a, he's brilliant. And then the humility piece is, is our business is one where you're down on your knees a lot and you're in compromised positions, rolling somebody's pant legs up or doing things. And that's, that's the other thing I, I would love Ann to touch on about her career at Condé Nast because her boss was someone who played that role too. And she, she, she wouldn't come across as a necessarily humble person, but I think that's what you saw in her. Well, I mean, people who are hard, you know, when you, you know, a focus of getting the job done, no matter what it takes, is um, the mark of a great leader. And even though it's, it's, he, 
loves this story, I don't tell it that often, but this, you know, diva of a woman was super focused on success. And so a photo shoot was really important, all the little elements of it. And expensive. Yeah, so we had this actress once who, um, she was a German actress, really beautiful, and we were doing an evening gown on her and she had, um, didn't shave under her arms because that's not the way of her country. But we needed to photograph her and so she hands me the razor and I have to like shave this woman's underarms because she doesn't know how to do it, and that's you served. You served as an as a assistant, and the editor made it feel important. But um, I have said the reason I, I mean, of course, I was going to do it. I was the slave on the set, but I knew actually that she would have done it herself. Like she, nothing was above her to get the job done to make sure that she was making a beautiful photo shoot that cost a ton of money for Vogue magazine. So it's and nice to know, you know. So the combination yeah. of that kind of does lead to honor. Because mm -hmm. in your, the other thing we wanted to say is, is in our company is, is retail's not always known for being an honorable vocation or a great vocation or something you aspire to, but it is. I mean, it really is because you're serving people. I mean, you're doing mm -hmm. one of the greatest things ever is taking care of somebody, enhancing their lives, which is a, 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 another way we, we like to think of what we're doing, which sounds highfalutin for the selling clothes, but it's true. No, it's great. So. Y'all have been around, uh, obviously with Polly Mellon and some of these great leaders and Jake Crew. What, what have you learned about leadership from the New York days and what is changing in leadership now that you could share with us? And what, you, what, are, you, what are you learning? Yeah. I think uh, going, going back is, you know, both of our, you know, our, our parents were both uh, fantastic sets of parents and they encouraged us to do things and uh, to try things and to go out. I mean, and, you know, left it in the summers to go work places where her family wasn't. And she, family sent her off to Europe when she graduated from college. And my dad said, go to New York, see if you can figure it out. So go try, give it a shot. Don't, don't sit around. And that's, that was also a little bit of what fed Ann and she doesn't acknowledge this, but what fed Ann in the opening of her story is one of the things she said to me, she doesn't really even remember it that well, is, is that I said, you know, this is gonna be hard. And I'm, I'm usually the guy not even half full. It's like it's overflowing. And I said, it's gonna be hard. You're gonna lose your free time. You're gonna lose time with the girls. It's gonna be difficult. And she said, you know what? I want the girls to see that we don't sit on the sidelines when there's an opportunity like this that avails itself. And so, um, that was one that the others are just, you know, coaches along the way, band directors, friends. You know, I, I think one of the things I learned from uh, working at Ralph Lauren was run your own race, do your own thing. Ralph mm -hmm. said, you know, somebody was doing very well with black suits back in the early 90s. They called him the black suit gang, Calvin Klein, Giorgio Armani, Donna Kieran, all these people. And, and the guy that was running clothing said, we're, we're getting killed by those guys. And Ralph was like, let them have their day. You know, and who's the most successful designer ever? It's Ralph Lauren. And so that was a, a great thing to remember because we don't really love to look at what other people are doing. We, we like to design from our closet outward, like what don't we have? What do we want? What's worn out that it's time for it to come back? So, you know, I think what's changed a lot is more the emotional side of leadership. And I, you know, I certainly mm -hmm. there's, you know, more material to read on all of that. But I look back and Sid and I were able to attend you know, an amazing leadership conference where we got to hear all these people talk. And I think that, you know, I look back and I would have been a much better worker and more efficient had, you know, the, this crazy woman I worked for been a different kind of a leader. She could have taught me more. It could have been more impactful. I mean, I just 
gleaned all this stuff by, you know, soaking in every nuance. And I did, you know, you learn a lot to your point from, from bad leaders too. But I think that, you know, a crazy work environment, it creates chaos and, and learning, not, not going too far because I wouldn't, you know, we have citizens emotionally <laughs> Uh, really? <laughs> intuitive as I am. I mean, it, it takes both. That's you know, true. Have, so um, I think that that's something that I think I'm really interested in is, is um, leading by, um, by thinking about what, you know, what, what, what is on the, you know, this is biblical, what's, what comes out of your heart is, you know, so you got to be really careful about that. But in the end of the day, too, I, like I said, we're New Yorkers and we just, you know, I don't want to hear about it. I just want to get it done. Well, how about a hand for Anne and Sid Master? Thanks for listening to the Launch University podcast. We hope it's helped you move from go-getter to difference maker. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more helpful resources, visit launchuniversity.com.